Amen. Thank you, Ken. All right. Well, uh, it's good to be back. Violet and I had a little time away, a week, visiting our grandkids. And of course, my son and daughter-in-law also. But you know, it's all about the grandkids, right? <laughs> when you get to this stage of life. Oh, Lord. I never would have known. Anyway, um, I want to thank uh, both Leo and Ken for filling in the pulpit for me. They did a great job. And th this morning, um, I want to jump back into uh, where we left off a few weeks ago. Um, several weeks ago, we began a new series based upon a greeting at the end of um, our previous series in 1 Peter. We got to chapter 5, and right near the end, Peter is writing to these churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he says this. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. She who is in Babylon. Now, since it's been a few weeks, let's go back and recap a couple things. With the exception of Jerusalem, Babylon is the most mentioned city in all of the Bible. As we learned earlier, its, uh, its origins go all the way back to the biblical city of Babel, located in ancient Iraq. It was founded by a guy named Nimrod, and it was centered around the building of a tower in a united rebellion against God, a rebellion that God judged by confusing the, languages, the language of the people and scattering them throughout all of the earth. Babel, Babel, was eventually reestablished and became the capital of the Babylonian Empire, one of the world's greatest empires, and one that rose to its height during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, who just like his ancestors, rebelled against God, not by building a tower, but by tearing down a temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and taking away all of the furnishings, including the Ark of the Covenant, back to Babylon to set before his God. It was his way of saying, your God submits to my God. And not only did he bring back all of that, all the artifacts of the temple, but he also brought back the Jewish people in, in slavery. And one of those people that he, he brought back was Daniel. And we're going to be looking a, a bit at Daniel's life this morning. Well, centuries after uh, Nebuchadnezzar, centuries later, when Peter was writing this letter to the churches of, of Asia Minor, after the empires of Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had long faded into history, we find that the spirit of Babylon had not faded away. The reason we, we know that is because of what Peter says here. The spirit of Babylon was just as present in the dominant empire of Peter's day, the Roman Empire, and apparently centered in the capital of Rome, of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. And thus, Peter's phrase she who is in Babylon sends her greetings, refers to the church, she who is in Babylon. They were really in Rome, but the spirit of Babylon rested and was centralized in that great city of Rome. Now, since the fall of Rome, of course, many empires have come and gone, but the spirit of Babylon has not. Today, it wields its influence not through a single empire, but through many agencies and world powers, all working together to bring humanity 
into one empire under one government, just like they did at Babel. It's almost rebuilding of the tower part two. In concert with that satanic effort, the spirit of Babylon continues to oppose God's God and God's people and will do so until Jesus Christ returns and destroys it. And that's what Revelation 18 and 19 are about, the destruction of Babylon. But until then, God's people are always going to have to learn to follow his will, to serve his purpose, to stay on mission, to be spiritually fruitful in the presence of Babylon, in the presence of the spirit of Babylon. The world system is what the New Testament calls it. We are always living in the context of a spiritual and, and cultural resistance that manifests so many different ways in our everyday life. So the question is, then how do we do that? That's what this series is about. That's why we're in Daniel now. How do we do that? How do we live in the presence of the spirit of Babylon in a way that exemplifies faith in God and hope for the future and love that reaches out to others? So again, that's where the book of Daniel comes in, and he becomes, if you will, kind of a model for us and how to do that. As we learned a few weeks ago, Daniel and his friends were part of the first group of Jews that were taken captive back to Babylon, and they were all given Babylonian names. They were given a Babylonian education and all to serve the, uh, in the administration of the Babylonian king, who is Nebuchadnezzar. In essence, if you think about this, Daniel was taken away from a very God-centric Hebrew culture where everything revolved around the one true God, and he was placed into a culture that was completely the opposite and hostile to God. And the way Daniel handles this transition, again, is a model that demonstrates to us that we can learn from how we can, in the present, be joyful fruitful, hopeful, and purposeful in a society where nearly all of our cultural institutions of power have become hostile to the Christian faith. You know, several decades ago, our cultural institutions, government, arts, media, academia, they were at the very least um, informally supportive of the Christian faith. You could say we lived in somewhat of a Christian culture. That's no longer true, of course, and it has not been for some time. So in a way, not exactly, but in a way, we're kind of all like Daniel, trying to live a life of faith in God while living in Babylon. We are trying to live in the world, but not become of the world. Now, most Christians, they believe there's only two options when it comes to living in Babylon. There's option number one, assimilation. Option number two, isolation. If you assimilate into culture, you lose your identity as a child of God. The salt has lost its saltiness. The light has been put under a bushel. You become just like the world. However, if you isolate from culture, you lose your platform to be a witness to culture and share the gospel with unbelievers. So neither assimilation or isolation is the way. There is, however, a third way. Don't assimilate into culture. Don't isolate from culture. But instead, be a servant of God to culture. And that's what Daniel did. 
Even though he was given a Babylonian name, a Babylonian education, a Babylonian occupation, he never, never, never assimilated. He never became Babylonian. But neither did he isolate. Rather, he served God's purpose by serving in the administration of four Babylonian kings. And he did it for the glory of God. He didn't isolate. He didn't assimilate because he remained the servant of God to culture. If you see yourself as a servant of God to culture, you will be able to avoid assimilating into it or becoming like it or isolating from it. And this is really, really important today in our context. You're a servant of God at all times. You are on a mission to your workplace, to your school, to your neighborhood, to your soccer team, to the school board, wherever it is, in the grocery store, in the neighborhood. It doesn't make any difference. You are always a servant of God to culture, bearing his truth and extending his love. And the moment you stop seeing yourself as God's servant to culture, you will tend to begin to assimilate become more like the world, or isolate and become less effective either way. Now, when you assimilate, we automatically see that's not the way to go. We don't want to become like the world. You know, 1 John has some some pretty uh, straightforward things to say about becoming like the world, even as far as saying, if we become like the world, the love of the Father is not in us. We all see that. We all can avoid that. We want to avoid that. But isolation, I think, is more of a temptation, especially to Christians who are pretty committed. It's a temptation for us, but it's just as dangerous of a path because when you isolate, you think you're doing something good, you think you're protecting, but you also will tend to shrink back from living your life with a sense of hope for the future. You see all the craziness going on around you, and you stop planning for the future because the present is so unstable. You start putting things off. I heard a guy on an interview a couple weeks ago who was uh, one of the guys that was on the ground level of AI being developed at Microsoft. And he tells the story one day of of this moment, this epiphany, this this Oppenheimer moment where he realized what he was doing was wrong, that he was actually working towards the destruction of the human race. And he, and he has this moment, and he describes that moment when it happens, when he realized that AI will probably, within 10 years, control much of our lives. This is what he believes. He's a guy who invented it. He should know. I don't know. It's just his opinion. I don't want to get you all hyped up on that this morning. I'm just, this is an example right off the cuff. It's not in my notes. But it's, I was reminded just as I was standing here of something he said. He was giving advice, and he says, you know, if you're planning on having kids, don't. Wait, because this thing may not work out very well. See, that's what happens when fear settles in. You lose this this hope for the future. You see all the craziness, whether it be AI or a hundred other things in culture. And you stop planning for the future because the present's so unstable. 
Now think of yourself as, as a Jew who had been in Jerusalem, worshiping at the temple, part of your Hebrew culture. Everything's going fine. You're a nation. You're, you're autonomous. You have an identity. And all of a sudden, a superior army comes in, destroys you, your, your, your culture, and carries you away to be slaves in Babylon. There you are in Babylon. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, we're just going to survive for today. See, that's what you start thinking. It becomes more, here's what I need to do just to survive. There's no future. Don't waste your time thinking about the future. We're just trying to survive today. We just got to make it through today. And that's why God had Jeremiah, a prophet during this time, write a letter to all of these Jews who are exiled into Babylon. Jeremiah 29, famous chapter. We know the verse at the end, but we often don't know the context of what was being said. It all starts in verse 4. God says through Jeremiah to these exiles in Babylon, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Now that's the last thing I'm thinking of, all right? If I'm there, are you? Build houses houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there as a people. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you two will prosper. Don't do it for the city's sake. Do it for your sake because I want you ready to leave at my appointed time and go back. And that's what he says next. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise. I will bring you back to this place, Jerusalem, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope, and a future. You see what God was doing right there? In chaos, cultural chaos, it's easy to lose your hope. It's easy to stop planning. Yes, we are aliens in this world, but we are resident aliens. And so build houses and plant gardens and have kids and have families. Keep going on regardless of the chaos. That's God's word of hope. Not only to that generation, but also to our generation. So don't isolate from culture. Stop planning for the future. Don't assimilate into culture and live as, well, this is all that there is. Be God's servant to culture. But you know what? Being God's servant to culture comes with some significant challenges. And Daniel faces those through the early chapters of the book of Daniel. The first one here is in our text today, Daniel 2. We're going to take up half of it and we'll finish next week. Verse 1, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream here, and apparently 
a unique dream. It's disturbed him greatly. And so he summoned again all of these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. Basically, they were the kind of the political consultants of the day, the transpotters, the religious gurus, the priests, kind of all rolled up in one. Later on, they're called wise men. They're called several things in this passage. And, and part of their duty, among many other responsibilities, was to in, interpret the king's dreams. And interpreting signs was a very important part of the Babylonian religion, which encouraged looking for like warnings about the future or omens in a lot of things, like in bizarre phenomena. You know, a calf was born with three eyes. That's telling us something. So they would tell the king, here's what it means. Do you get it, what I'm talking about here? They would do that with phenomena in the sky, in the, in the heavens, and they would also do that through the king's dreams. But since these dreams did not come from God, they were not truly interpreted, but rather they were used to manipulate the king through divination. In essence, what they did is they calculated the mood of the king, what he wanted to hear, and then told him what he wanted to hear. And apparently he realizes that, and he's kind of fed up with it, as we'll see. But these dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has are not just any old dream product of our physiology. These dreams were from God himself, and they were given for two reasons. Number one, God was informing Nebuchadnezzar of the future of his kingdom. And not only the future of his kingdom, but the kingdoms that would follow after Nebuchadnezzar. After the Babylonians would come the Persians. After the Persians would come the Greeks. After the Greeks would come the Romans. Daniel tells this to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream hundreds and hundreds of years before these things actually happen. And do they happen? Exactly like the dream Daniel interprets. Exactly. We'll look at the dream in more detail next week. But the other reason for this is, is that God wants to encourage Daniel and his friends and, and the rest of the Jews who are, in, who are in exile that even though they were exiled in Babylon, God was sovereign over the nations, and he was working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, working it out so much so that he could actually say, here's the next kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom. It's all in his hands. He's working it all out. And that was to provide some comfort for these people. They realized God had not abandoned them. They were part of God's plan. Yes, they were suffering there because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry. But God's plan for them ultimately was to bring them back to the city. He said, the plans I have for you are to prosper you, to give you hope in a future. Part of that hope was knowing that God is sovereign over all. So, the astrologer said to Nebuchadnezzar, tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Well, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces, and your house has turned into piles of rubble. He was a bad dude, this Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Brutal. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream. Interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And then the king answered, I'm certain you are trying to gain time because you realize 
that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. Chop, chop. And I think this has been building up in old Nebi here. He's been tired of these fake interpretations. He says, you have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly why Nebuchadnezzar refuses to describe the contents of his dream to the astrologer. We don't really know. I mean, he could have forgotten the details. You know, he knows he's had the dream. It's really been, you know, it's one of those dreams like, ah, you wake up and just sweat, but you don't know what you dreamed. And so he's, he's try, he can't remember it, and he needs them to, to help. Or, number two, and I think this is the way, of I, as I have already kind of tipped my hat to, he remembered the dream but wanted to test the authenticity of the astrologers because the dream was so disturbing he did not want to be deceived with a fictional interpretation. Either way, when the astrologers told Nebuchadnezzar no one, including him, could, inter- could reveal the dream, he became unhinged, irrationally, angry. This made the king, verse 12, so angry and furious that he he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends, who apparently weren't part of this group that was interacting with Nebuchadnezzar at that moment. There were other wise men that weren't there. So they went after these guys to look for them, to put put them to death. So the question is, why, why was Nebuchadnezzar so angry that he threatened to, first of all, cut them into pieces and destroy their houses? But then he expands this right. Here's where it gets super irrational. Because not only does he say, I'm going to kill you guys because you didn't tell me my dream or the interpretation, I'm just going to wipe out all the wise men of Babylon. Now, that's really irrational. You're wiping out the, the cream of the crop, the ones you've invested in the most, those with the highest education, those who serve in positions that help you run the government. I'm going to wipe them all out. Now, why does he do that? And, of course, wiping out all these guys includes Daniel and his friends, right? Why? Well, despite his power and his position, as the most powerful person in the world at that time, the leader of the most powerful kingdom. He was an incredibly insecure man. And you will find this to be true of most people with great power. It's the byproduct of having great power for a long time. They're the most insecure people on the face of the earth because they have the farthest to fall. He's incredibly insecure. And that insecurity, what does insecurity usually do to to people? Well, most of the time it makes them incredibly hostile, makes them angry. Those are the two side effects of the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon is pride. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower for ourselves. But it, 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 it manifests with this great insecurity and great 
hostility. See, when the spirit of Babylon becomes more powerful in a culture, in a society, it produces more and more pride. More and more pride produces more and more insecurity. More and more insecurity produces more and more hostility. The reason our culture has become so hostile over the last 10 years is because it's more and more and more insecure. And the reason that our society has become more and more insecure is that it has moved farther and farther and farther away from God, the ultimate source of security, choosing instead to build our own tower and to make a name for ourselves. See, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful person in the world. He had everything that a person could could ever want, could ever have, could ever dream of possession, great wealth, influence, fame. He was in the process of building one of the greatest empires that would memorialize his legacy forever. And he was building gardens in Babylon that would become known as one of the wonders of the ancient world, the, the gardens of Babylon. Why then should one little dream fill him with such anxiety? The simple answer is best said through some of St. Augustine's most famous words. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Until we find rest, peace, security in God, We will, in our war against God, you will not rule over me. We will, in our struggle for autonomy, pursue all kinds of created things to try to find a substitute peace, a substitute form of security. But peace and security, true peace and security, will always, always remain elusive because there is nothing in all creation that will ever produce a deep and lasting peace, a deep and lasting security. There is an illusion, of course, of peace and security, and Nebuchadnezzar had that. He had plenty of that. But there's no true security without being in right relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. You know, the the simplistic bumper sticker is spot on. Right? You've seen it before. No God... No peace. No God. No peace. No peace. No security. No wholeness. No rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I think sometimes, after we've been believers for a while, for some time, we we become so accustomed to having peace with God and to knowing the peace of God, that we, we forget what it was like not to have it. I wish sometimes I could just go back for five minutes and feel the way and sense what I did before I knew Christ, just to remember, because my life for so many years has been flooded with nothing but Christ's mercy and grace and peace and goodness. You forget kind of what it's like, and then I think about it again, I go, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't need to do that. I'm just going to trust God's Word on that one. You know, I'm not talking here about, you know, situational insecurity that arises when we face trials of various kinds. I'm 
I'm talking about that deep-seated insecurity that subversively dominated our lives before we believed the gospel, trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, it's that insecurity that Nebuchadnezzar was dominated by because his heart had no rest in God. He had no security. He thought of himself rather as kind of God-like, and that's why he gets so ticked off when the astrologers tell him, there's nobody but the gods that can do this, and the gods do not live with men. And he was thinking to himself, wait a second, who do you think I am? But he was powerless to interpret it also. He was ill-prepared to accept the truth that there is a God in heaven who is Lord over all creation and Lord over history. He was unwilling for that one and true, one and only God to be Lord over his life. And what haunted him about his dream, as we shall see next week, is that basically God was saying, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom may be great, but it's only because I allowed it. It's only because of me. It's not because of you. And just like I set you up, I'm going to bring you down. Just like I set you up by my decree, your kingdom will fade away and decay. The only kingdom that lasts forever is my kingdom. The only king that will stand forever, kingdom that will stand forever is my kingdom and my king. And we see this in the vision. In the vision, there's a statue, and at the end, there's a rock that is hewn out that comes and crushes these other four kingdoms. And of course, that rock is symbolic of Christ. We're getting to get a little prophecy next week. Just a little bit. All right. So this is why Nebuchadnezzar was filled with uh, insecurity and hostility. Ultimately, he was at he was at war with God, and this is the spirit of Babylon. So how did Daniel respond to it? That's what we want to get to. How did Daniel respond to this? Well, first of all, he responds, number one, with wisdom and with tact. Notice in verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Now, the word wisdom here, the first word, wisdom, is from the Hebrew word that means to speak counsel or to speak as a counselor. So what, what, what Daniel is doing here is he becomes Ariok's counsel. He becomes the counselor to his superior. But the second thing is it, it says Daniel also spoke not only with counsel but with tact. And that word for tact is another Hebrew word for wisdom that is from the root word or is actually from the word that means to taste. So the question is, how does a Hebrew word for taste become a word used for wisdom? Well, as you know, taste is one of the five senses. And like the other senses, it can be developed to a very high degree. You know, there are some people who can sit down to eat a very finely prepared entree of fine food and tell you every spice that's in that food. There's a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. Well, they've been trained. They know they've tasted enough food, enough variety where they could tell you that. Others can tell you where a coffee is from, the region that it's from, how it was harvested, the degree to which it was roasted. 
You might think I'm talking about myself, but I'm not. <laughs> I am not. But I do fancy myself as one who can discern a good cup of Ethiopian. <laughs> Other people can tell you the grape, the region, the year of a certain bottle of wine. That was 57 Bordeaux. Well, they can do that. Why? They developed this, this sense of taste or discernment. In a similar way, it is possible for us to develop a sense of what God wants us to do or what God, God wants us to say in a particular situation. That's wisdom. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is a highly developed sense of God's ways learned through a pattern of obedience to God's Word. It does not necessarily come with age it comes with understanding the Lord's word and the Lord's way. So just like the wine is tasted over and over and over again so they, if the person can discern a particular vintage, the believer reads and obeys, reads and obeys, reads, obeys, reads, obeys. Over and over and over and over so that when you come to a situation in life, you can instinctively know this is what God wants done. This is what God wants said. This is how he wants it done. This is how he wants it said. Now, I believe that that quality is critical for the time that we are living in. If there ever was a time we need to know what to do, it's now. And Daniel knew. Daniel knew what God wanted him to do. Because why? He read and obeyed, read and obeyed, read and obeyed, read and obeyed. And as he, he did so, he sensed the story of Joseph in Egypt was being repeated in his life. Just like Joseph had interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh in Egypt, so it seemed as if God was going to have him interpret the dreams of, of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. In fact, as we'll see next week, when Daniel appears before Nebuchadnezzar and explains the dream and gives him the interpretation, he answers Nebuchadnezzar just like Joseph answered Pharaoh in Egypt, giving full glory to God. He, said, he says this in, in verse 27, chapter 2, No wise man, enchanter, magician, d diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I love that verse. I remember several months ago when Violet and I were reading through Daniel and uh, not knowing that I would be teaching it now, but just reading through it together, how we just both centered in and loved that verse. But there is a God in heaven. The New Testament is full of those same conjunctions. Here's the situation, but God. Same thing right here with Daniel. So again, we are living in a time very similar to Daniel's. And, uh, and we're living in a time where wisdom is, is scarce and sparse. And if there ever was a time, as I said, that, it, that it, it is imperative for God's people to learn how to respond to the current spirit of Babylon with wisdom from God, it is right now. We need the wisdom of God so that the challenges of our living in these times, in these days, so that we will know, like Daniel knew, how to respond to them, what to do and how to do it, what to say and how to say it. That's wisdom. And I can't think of anything really that's more valuable than that. When you stop and think about it, and that's what Solomon said, God said, whatever you want, you can have it. Wealth, power, whatever, this list. And what does Solomon say? Now here's what I want. Here's what's more valuable than all the gold and silver in the world. Wisdom. Knowing what God 
wants me to do, how he wants me to do it, knowing what God wants me to say and how he wants me to say it as his servant to culture. So valuable. Second of all, Daniel responds with prayer. Shortly after Daniel is made aware of the crisis and asked the king for more time, it says he returned in verse 17 to his house and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to what? To plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So when Daniel returned home, I want you to notice this. The first thing, not the second thing. The first thing he did was to contact three friends and start a prayer meeting, start a prayer vigil, have a special time of prayer. And there's a lot to be said for having people in your life that you could contact. Basically, this was in the, you know, who knows what time of day it was, but the three people that you could contact and say, we need to pray right now, and they keep praying with you. And there are several things besides that that we can learn from this prayer, but one lesson that really stands out is this. Don't wait to pray. I see people doing this all the time. They face a crisis, and they're, they, they don't pray right away. They, they, they wait for all the facts to come in and all the options to be discovered, and then they decide, okay, now that we know everything, we can pray properly. Don't do that. Pray right away. You may not know every detail right away, but there's one thing you know for sure. You have significant limitations. Do you not? And God has has abundant mercy for your significant limitations. You know that before you know all the details of the crisis, so don't wait to pray. Daniel urged them, before he knew everything, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. You know, often one of the best ways to begin prayer is simply to confess your limitations, to confess your need for God's mercy in whatever circumstance that you are facing, whether that be big or small, the place you start is with, I have nothing, but you have everything. I have significant limitations, but you are the God who owns everything, who has all power and all wisdom. You're Al Shaddai. You're the one that's more than able to meet this need. You're the one that's more than able to guide me and lead me and provide for me. I come to you with nothing. Empty hands. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means blessed are those who have nothing. The Greek word there means nothing. <laughs> who come, <laughs> it really does. It means nothing, has nothing, just totally empty. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a real secret there, isn't it? Praying first, of course, does not mean that we can be irresponsible when it comes to assessing a situation or forming a, a plan of action, but it, it does acknowledge, Lord, you know, apart from you, my plans will fail. On my own, I can't fix this problem. I can't heal this wound. I can't correct this fault. I can't clean up the mess. I can't get my life back on track. I can't do that without you. 
God, if any good is to come out of this, you must intervene. Use me if you will, but you must intervene. Otherwise, my powers, my abilities, my connections, my plans will accomplish absolutely nothing. Be merciful to me, O Lord. It's a great way to pray. Third thing that Daniel responded with is praise. Look at verse 19. During the night, after that prayer, or during that prayer, The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. He had a vision in the night. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings. He raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what was asked of you, what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. And he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Notice Daniel here is not just thinking about his own skin. Did you notice that? Do you think that's kind of a way in which he's seeking Jeremiah 29, the welfare of the people that live around him, that are serving with him? He said, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. So when God showed Daniel the, the meaning of the dream and the interpretation of it, his immediate response, immediately, now if I, I'm Daniel, what am I going to do? I'm running to my buddies. Hey, guys, I got it. Right? Or I'm thinking, you know, death is imminent. The swordsman could walk through that door at any moment. I better hurry up and get down to, down to Nebuchadnezzar and tell them I've, I've got the dream. I know what it is, and I know the interpretation of it also. But the first thing he does is what? He turns to God in a time of praise. He sings a song. The text here in the original Hebrew is, is put in the form of, of poetry or a song. He's not just reciting these things. He's singing praise to God. He's singing praise. He goes to God. The first thing he does when he gets the answer is he begins to praise God. And that tells you a ton about Daniel. His God-centered reaction to the impending crisis, prayer, was matched by his God-centered response of praise when the crisis was averted. The measure of our maturity lies not only in the fervency of our prayers in the time of crisis, but also in the wholeheartedness of our praise when God answers in grace and the crisis is averted. A lot of people pray up a storm, get the answer, and walk away relieved. Daniel didn't walk away relieved. He walked to God and began praising good example of this course, you know the story of the ten lepers in the New Testament. All healed by Jesus. All of them were what? In crisis, severe crisis. All of them experienced relief through physical healing. Only one, only one returned back to give thanks and praise to the Lord. Daniel was like that one. So before Daniel does anything, he turns to God in a song of praise, and he, he praises God for three things. First of all, he praises God for his wisdom. It says in this, I praise you for your wisdom, Lord. 
for a wisdom that works out everything for the best possible goals, by the best possible means, for the best possible reasons. God, the way you do things, I don't understand it. It looks backwards to me sometimes. But when I truly see it, when I see it rightly, I'll see and say, you knew what you were doing all along. You had a reason for doing things this way. Daniel does not fully understand how God was working all of his wise plan out, but he knew this part. He knew it was perfect because God's wisdom is perfect, because God is perfect in all of his ways. Secondly, he praises God for his, his power, a power that he, he says here, raises kings up, sets other kings down. Now Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar seem to have all the power at this moment, right? Power over Daniel. Power over his friends. Power over all the exiled Jews in captivity. But Daniel recognizes here that Nebuchadnezzar only has kingly power because God has given it to him. Because God is the one who raises up and sets down kings. Nebuchadnezzar may have been great by human standards, but ultimately he was a servant of God and he would serve God's purpose. Thirdly, Daniel praises God for making his wisdom and power known to him. See, God is all wise. God is all powerful. But he's also so merciful. More merciful than you will ever know. What Lamentation says that his mercies are new every morning. Great, oh great is your faithfulness, oh God. Oh, we underestimate his mercies. God is all-wise and all-powerful, but he's also merciful, and in his mercy, he imparts to us his wisdom and his power. He imparted it to Daniel to help Daniel handle the insecurity and the hostility of Babylon and preserve not only his life, but the life of all the Babylonian wise men. God gives wisdom. Wisdom through his word, wisdom through prayer. There's the wisdom that comes by hearing, obeying, hearing, obeying, reading, obeying, reading, obeying. There's a taste that's developed to know what God wants, what to do, what to say, how to say it. And then there's also that wisdom that God mercifully gives when we simply just ask him. If any of you, James says, lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But let him ask in faith. Boy, that should be a part of our prayer all the time, every single day. In your list, whatever that is, God, give me wisdom for today. Give me wisdom for today. So Daniel praises God for his wisdom and for his power. But as wise as Daniel was, you know something? Daniel did not have the wisdom that has been offered by God to every single person this side of the cross. See, Daniel was on the other side of the cross. And he had great wisdom. But not even close to the wisdom that's been made available to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, is that Christ crucified is the epitome of God's wisdom and power. The personification of God's wisdom and power. In Christ crucified, God displays 
the glories and the magnitude of his wisdom and power in making a way for sinners to be saved and become children of God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the wisest and the most empowering thing that any person could ever, ever do is to entrust all of your life to that Savior and believe on him that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again to make you right forever with God so that you would have that security that Nebuchadnezzar never had, so that you would know peace, the peace that passes all understanding, that you would have not only peace with God, but the experiential peace of God. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again. Daniel rejoiced for the wisdom of God that enabled him to avoid physical death. We rejoice in the wisdom of God displayed through the cross that enables us to be not only completely forgiven, but to live beyond death and receive God's gift of eternal life. There is a moment when each one of us will depart from this earth. We will die. Our bodies will go into grave. Where will your spirit and soul go? The immaterial part of you. Where will you go? You want to have that one nailed down long before you think it's going to happen. And we really never know, don't we? We never know. This night, your life could be required of you, Jesus said. You just don't know that. You want to know that for sure. You want to know that your sins are forgiven. You want to know that you're right with God. That's the wisdom of God. Embrace the wisdom of God and believe in Jesus Christ this morning. I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. If we could all bow our heads, actually a confession together. I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sin, that he rose from the dead. I repent of my sin. I trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and new life. From this moment forward, I'm a child of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, I have the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.